On this eve of Christmas, we invite you into a story. One that's been told for generations upon generations about God, about humanity and all of creation. And like all stories, it involves a plot and characters. It involves struggle and tension, twists and turns, climax and resolution. But the thing about this story is, it's true. And it happens to be the story that Christmas is all about. Now the plot of our story, which really is the Bible story, travels along the lines of a series of promises that God makes with specific people. Now these promises, the word that they're called in the Bible is covenant. And that's kind of a funny word that we don't use often today, but a covenant is simply a set of promises between two people. Think of the covenant of marriage, for example. A husband and wife make certain specific promises to one another and they live in a distinct relationship together. And what we see in scripture is that God makes covenants with people. And through these covenants, God tells the story of redemption. And so throughout our time together, we're going to journey through these covenants in order to see the beauty of the story that God is telling in the world and in the true meaning of Christmas. Well, our story opens with the creation of all things. God speaks and the world is formed. From the smallest molecule to the largest galaxy and everything in between. And as the pinnacle, the highest spot, brightest spot of his creation, he creates human beings, male and female, and they are made in his image. And as God's image bearers, God forms a unique relationship with them. They live in covenant relationship with God and they rule on his behalf over the rest of God's creation. He calls them to live as his servant, king, and queen and to serve so that the entire world might live under God's rule and be filled with goodness, justice, righteousness, peace, and love. But this reality is short-lived, for these first human beings do not hold up their end of the relationship. God calls them to maintain the covenant relationship by simply refraining from eating from one tree. Do that and enjoy abundant life forever with God. But eat of that one tree and the consequence is death. Well, a crafty serpent was present in the garden and he tricked and tempted these human beings to distrust God's word and his way. And they fall for it, literally. As they eat of the tree in that moment, all of God's good creation falls into sin and brokenness. These servant kings surrender their rule to God's enemy, the serpent. And because of that, instead of experiencing life as God had created and intended, all of creation is marked by sin and injustice, disharmony, unrighteousness, and yes, death. The covenant relationship is broken and the vision for God's eternal kingdom seems lost. And yet, and yet amid the darkness, a promise made brings hope. 
for a fallen world. For God speaks to the serpent, and he declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The promise made is that God will send another son, one born of a woman who will bring the reign of the serpent to an end and restore the covenant relationship and redeem God's vision for a kingdom that brings blessing and flourishing to all of creation. And so the story begins with us looking and waiting and longing for the one who will fulfill this promise by restoring the relationship and reestablishing the kingdom. As the story continues, things start to get a lot worse before they even dream of beginning to get better. The serpent now reigns in league with the humanity that is marked by the sin and rebellion of their first parents. Murder and the destruction of human life stains the children of Adam and Eve. And soon, sin begins to unravel the good world that God had made. And it breeds itself into all aspects of human life. It's so bad that it can be said of human beings that the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. God cannot stand by and watch his good world be destroyed, and so he sets a plan in motion to start things over and destroy those who wage war against his creation. He chooses Noah, the most righteous man on earth, and calls him to build a giant boat and to fill the boat with his family and every kind of animal. Then God wipes the slate clean with a flood of epic proportions and brings judgment on all those who are opposed to his ways and his world. And so, water covers the earth, creation is undone, and God resets things back to the way it was before he formed everything. The world is recreated, and in a way, the story restarts. And yet, here at this new beginning, we are left wondering if Noah will be the one to fulfill God's promise in the garden. Will he be the one who will destroy the serpent and defeat God's enemies? Will Noah be faithful to God and be the one through whom worldwide flourishing will come? The question hangs over the story. Will Noah succeed where Adam had failed? And will God's kingdom come once again? Unfortunately, we quickly find out that Noah will not succeed. For just like his great-great-great-great-granddaddy Adam, who sinned in a garden, Noah finds himself sinning in a garden as well. Even worse, we see the stain of sin is still in his children, as his son's dishonor once again brings curses on his descendants. It's clear that even after the flood, the serpent still reigns. Humanity is still marked by rebellion, and sin once again continues to spread. Shortly after Noah, humanity unites together in a defiant act of rebellion against God. And so the Lord decides he must confuse their language and scatter them across the earth in order to limit the power of their destruction. The world once again is in utter chaos, and we are left wondering, what is God going to do about his promise? 
If starting over isn't going to work, then how is creation going to be redeemed? If it's not Noah, then who is going to be the one to restore the covenant relationship and reestablish God's kingdom? Well, since starting over didn't work, God decided to enact a new plan. He calls out a man named Adam and tells him to travel to a land where he's never been before. God begins to make promises to Abraham. These promises are astonishing. He vows that Abraham will be the father of a great nation, that his offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky, and finally, that he would give all of Abraham's descendants an extraordinary land, that through them, God planned to bless the entire world. These unimaginable promises make us think back to the ones that God made to Adam and Eve at the beginning of creation. He gave them a land, which we know as the Garden of Eden, and he instructed them to fill the earth with his goodness. Then he blessed them. Of course, God did not give up on the plan that he made long before time began. It's just that now his course of action and all of his promises will be realized through Abraham and his descendants. Except at this point, there seems to be one teeny weeny problem with the plan. Abraham doesn't have any kids. And on top of that, Abraham is old. O-L-D, old. And his wife is old. I mean, this is like 100 years old. Really old. And who has kids at 100 years old? But oh, God had promised. And Abraham took God at, God at his word. And sure enough, when he was 100 years old, God gave him a son. He named him Isaac. So now there's hope in our story. There's hope that God will redeem his creation through a promised son. But then God tells Abraham to go and kill his son, to offer him up as a sacrifice. That seems like a really strange and messed up way to start a new nation. But once again, Abraham takes God at his word and he sets out to obey God's instructions. It is at the very last second God intervenes, which is what he intended to do all along. God provides a ram that is a sheep for the sacrifice instead of Isaac. That was God's way of saying to Abraham, don't be anxious. I am the God who provides, the one who rescues. Just obey me and trust me. Well, Abraham learned how to do just that. And because of his faith and his obedience, God continued to bless him and his children. Now after a time, Isaac, 
had kids of his own. Twins, in fact, and he named them Esau and Jacob. God picked Jacob, who was the youngest twin, to receive his father's blessing. And Jacob, well, he eventually had 12 sons. Whoa. This time, God selected the fourth son, whose name was Judah. It was him who would carry on the blessing, and with each generation and each subsequent blessing, we wonder, will this be the true promised son? The one who will bring an end to the serpent's reign and bring about the promised blessing to the entire world? Well, as it turns out, Isaac was like his dad, Abraham. He too lies about his wife. And Jacob, well, he's a selfish con artist. And his son Judah, Judah's so messed up, we can't even begin to talk about the things that he did. On top of all of this, now there's a famine in the land. Jacob, his sons and their families are forced to leave the promised land and to move to Egypt. And so, as the story of Abraham and his early descendants comes to an end, we're again left wondering, is God really gonna keep his promise? Who will actually be the promised son? How will Abraham's family, the generations after him, get back to the promised land? And will there be a faithful nation? And how will it be that God fulfills his promise to bless the whole wide world? Many years after Abraham had died, his descendants were living in the land of Egypt. They had grown into a large number of people, and because of that, the king of Egypt began to despise them. Soon, he enslaved them and began to treat them terribly, so much that the people cried out to God for help. God heard his people and decided that he was going to deliver them. He called a man named Moses and told him to go lead his people out of Egypt. God brought plagues and signs against the king of Egypt until eventually the king decided to let God's people go. However, the king changed his mind and decided to go after them. But God let his people right through the middle of the sea and rescued them from the oppressive king of Egypt. Then, by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night, God would lead his people through the wilderness and bring them to a mountain. And on that mountain, God forms a covenant with his people. He declares to them that they are going to be treasured people and that he's going to care for them and protect them. Not only that, he is going to make them into a nation set apart for God so that they can show the whole rest of the world what an amazing God he is. He's going to bring them up to a promised land and give them special laws and commandments so that the other nations will know that these people are God's people. And here, on this mountain, at this moment, you begin to wonder, is this the way that God is going to deal with the curse? Is Moses the promised son through whom God will work to establish his kingdom? Are these people that God is going to use to bring the blessing to the entire world like he promised their forefather Abraham? Is this new nation going to be the place where God reigns and people experience their flourishing they were created for? Well, that wonder is short-lived because almost as soon as God makes this covenant, we find the people breaking it by making a calf out of gold and then worshiping it. This makes God very angry, but he ultimately decides to renew his covenant with Israel. 
He knows that they won't ultimately be able to keep all the commands, and so he sets up a system of sacrifice to atone for the people's sins so they can maintain their relationship with God. But his people are stubborn, and they keep distrusting God and breaking his commandments. Even Moses fails to trust God. And so God declares that this whole generation, and even Moses himself, won't be able to enter the promised land. After Moses comes Joshua, a mighty warrior and a man of God, and you think, maybe he'll be the one, and maybe this new generation will be the people whom God uses. But they fall into disobedience too, and suddenly, a vicious cycle begins. God's people sin, they fall into captivity. Because of their sin, God brings a judge to deliver them, but then they obey for a while. But soon they start to drift, and the whole cycle starts all over again. And so, as the story continues, we are left still looking for the promised deliverer and the faithful people through whom God will work to bring the blessing to the entire world. After this cycle, the people start asking for a king. Now, it's not necessarily wrong that they want a king because God has promised them a king. The problem is why they want a king. They think that a king will be the one who will save and protect them. And just like other things, sometimes you get what you ask for. So God gives them a king. He chooses first Saul, but Saul royally messed up, pun intended. And so God rejects Saul as his, and his descendants and seeks after another who will be a righteous ruler. So he chooses David, a man after his own heart, and anoints him as the next king of Israel. Now David is a great king. He defeats Israel's enemies, and that includes a giant. In fact, David leads Israel into a time of prosperity and blessing. But the best thing about David's story is not what David did, but what God would promise would be done. God promised that one day through David, he would have a son who would be obedient to his word and his ways. Well, God promises that he will seat this son on David's throne and establish his kingdom forever. And here, in the promises of David, to David, God brings all of these promises to focus. For the promised one from the beginning, the offspring of a woman, will be a son of David. And this promised obedient son will be the king who will defeat the serpent, establish God's kingdom, reign over God's people, and bring blessing to the entire world. And so God's people start to look for this son of David who would bring and establish God's kingdom. Well, David has a son, Solomon, and he starts off well but ends up pretty messed up. So messed up, in fact, that the entire kingdom is divided into two after he dies. And then one after another, the kings in the line of David seem to just fail and fail and fail again. Sound familiar in our story? But none seem to be that obedient king. Worse, they keep leading God's people to follow and worship other gods. 
Finally, it gets so bad that both kingdoms are taken captive by foreign empires and sent into exile. Like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God's people are removed from the promised land. And then the line of David goes dark. No kings, no land, and exiled people. Yet in the midst of all this, God continues making promises about this son of David. He'll be born of a virgin. He'll be born in David's town, Bethlehem. He'll be a messenger to prepare the way. He'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he'll be a suffering servant who will die for the nations. But he will live again and be a light to all peoples. God's people have continuously broken their covenant promises. God has tried to warn them. He sent them prophet after prophet. He challenged them. He encouraged them. He reminded them, but they just wouldn't listen. And so, eventually, God goes silent. No more prophets, no more warnings, no more encouragement, just silence for 400 years. And in this deafening silence, the world is left wondering, what about God's promises? Did the serpent win? Is sin too great that God cannot conquer it? Will death reign over creation forever? And what about that serpent-crushing, promise-fulfilling, world-blessing, obedient, eternal king? Was that just all talk? Promises made but never kept? And once again, we're left asking the question that we asked in the beginning. Who will be the promised one to restore the covenant relationship and reestablish the kingdom that was lost at the beginning? It wasn't Noah, it wasn't Abraham, it wasn't Moses or Israel, it wasn't David or his sons. So the question that we continue to ask is, who will it be? So the story's reached its darkest point. The people are out of the land. They have no king. They're yearning and hoping for something to happen. And oftentimes when you're in your darkest moments, that's when you need some hope the most. Often hope comes in promises. It did at the beginning, and it does in Israel's time as well. You know, we've been in our own darkest moment. 2020 has been one uh, interesting year. Maybe not for you, maybe you're killing it, but maybe the rest of you are like me and you feel like you're limping towards the finish line. And you feel this throughout this year, the darkness and chaos of the world as we've seen death, job loss, 
pain, division, all sorts of things seem to run rampant. And it's interesting because in the midst of that, I feel like we're all kind of looking for hope. We're all looking for some sort of promise, something that will change our reality. We think maybe if we can get the right person in office, maybe if we can get the right vaccine, maybe if this happens or that happens, then suddenly things will change. And the world that we all long for, not just the world we knew, but the better world, the one where there isn't division or disease or death. And we just keep looking, maybe, maybe there'll be a promise that can bring us hope. Well, God's people experienced a promise that would bring them hope in the midst of their darkest time. And I want to take a few moments tonight together and look at that promise, that final covenant. You find it in Jeremiah chapter 31. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me if you want, or maybe you have your phone and you want to look it up. But I want to take a moment and read just a few verses of Scripture that speak to a promise that God makes to His people in their darkest time. This is what the prophet Jeremiah says. Says He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God shows up in his people's darkest moment, and he brings another promise. A promise of relationship, another covenant. Now, you might be thinking at this point in the story, another one? What about the first five? Did those not work? Like, why do we need another covenant? But God actually tells us why this covenant is going to be different, why this problem or this promise is going to bring something that the other ones didn't. You see, God knows. God knows that we're no good at actually keeping the covenants and the promises. In fact, that's what he says at the very beginning. He says, listen, I'm going to form a new covenant because you guys have been terrible at the old ones. And this one's not going to be like those. It's not going to be like the ones that you keep breaking and keep failing. You see, the problem with the covenants throughout the story and the promises that God makes is that we never end up holding our end of the bargain. We fail. Humanity fails time and time and time again. Like a spouse who has an affair on their husband or wife, God's people continue to turn their back on him, to disobey, to break the relationship. And so God says, I've got to do something new here. And in this covenant, 
we actually find the new thing that God is going to do. The first thing that God reminds us is that if we're actually going to enjoy the sort of covenant relationship that he wants for each one of us, then we need a new heart and a new identity. Because the common thread throughout all the covenants is the sin, and sin ultimately is a heart issue. It's not just what we do. It's not just the fact that we do things to break the covenant. It's that our hearts are bad. In fact, earlier in Jeremiah, in chapter 17, verse 9, Jeremiah would say that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And if you're honest with yourself, you know that our hearts are bad. You know in our quietest moments, in the moments when no one's looking, in the thoughts that race through our mind, that there's something off in us. And what is off in us is what causes all the chaos, all the brokenness, all the fallenness of the world around us. It's our sin that is the problem. And our sin is a heart issue. And so God says, listen, I'm actually going to come and I'm going to form a new covenant. And in this new covenant, I'm actually going to give you a new heart. I'm not just going to give you new rules to follow, new things to do. I'm actually going to do something fundamentally at the very core of who humanity is in order to transform us so that we can live in relationship with God. See, that's been God's desire all along, to live in relationship with his people and the creation that he made. That's what he wanted at the beginning. And throughout the whole story, God continues to say, I want to live in relationship with you, but your sin, your sin is keeping you from relationship with me. And so I'm going to give you a new heart. And when I give you that new heart, you're going to know me. You're going to be able to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. In fact, Jeremiah tells us that everyone will know him from the least to the greatest, that they won't need a mediator to have to come through like Moses, but that we individually and personally can have a living relationship with the God who made us and the God who loves us. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, God promises that in this new covenant, he's going to forgive our sin. See, we have the promise of God's forgiveness, and it's secured in his covenant. God says, I'm going to deal with this sin issue that keeps you from relationship with me. And in this new covenant, this final covenant, in this promise, I'm actually going to do something that will allow you to enjoy relationship with me forever. And this is the promise that brings God's people hope in the midst of darkness. And it's where our story kind of picks back up. 400 years of silence. God hasn't been speaking. The people do not hear his voice anymore. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, God starts speaking again. But he doesn't speak to prophets or priests he doesn't come and begin speaking to a king. No, he shows up to a young woman that no one knows and no one's ever heard of before. And her name's Mary. And God begins to make new promises to Mary. And in his new promises, he reminds her 
of all the old promises that he's been making. You actually see one of the promises that God makes in Luke chapter 1, where the angel says, shows up and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary would, in fact, have that child. And the story of Christmas is a story that reminds us that Jesus is the promised king, that God said This is going to be the one to fulfill all the promises I've been making all along. Jesus would grow up and he would announce that the kingdom of God was fully and finally, that God's kingdom was here, that it had arrived in him. And he would live as the faithful, obedient son where everyone else had failed in relationship with his father. And he would fulfill each one of God's promises born in Bethlehem, born in the line of David, the promised king. And then one day he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey to announce together that the king had arrived in the city that God had planned and prepared for him. And for a brief moment, we think, finally, the kingdom of God is here. But those old enemies of God, that ancient serpent, sinful humanity, and even death itself, they couldn't let it go that easily. And so they conspire together to have this king killed. But what they didn't know was that was exactly what he came to do. Because it was through his death that God would establish this new covenant and deal with the sin that plagued all the old covenants. In fact, the night before Jesus would die, he would have a meal with his friends. And in that meal, he would take a cup and he would ask them to drink it. And then he would say, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, what Jesus knew is that the only way that our sin problem could be dealt with was if there was a willing sacrifice that was made. Because the penalty from sin from the very beginning was death. It was death that was the problem. It's still the problem that we experience today. Death is the punishment for sin. And the only way God could forgive sins was if someone was willing to take the punishment for all of us. God couldn't just overlook sin. He's too just and righteous for that. There had to be someone who'd be willing to pay our sin so that we could enter into a covenant relationship with God. That's exactly what Jesus did. For after he made this statement the next day, he would go to the cross. And he would willingly lay down his life, crucified, killed, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. And as Jesus took his final breath on that cross, you had to think, that the world felt for just a moment, maybe the serpent wins. For three days, there was more silence until on that blessed morning, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
And in rising from the dead, he announced that he had crushed the head of that ancient serpent, that he had dealt with the issue of sin for all time, and that he was now establishing God's kingdom forever where death itself would be undone. And he says, I'm the promised king. And he would say, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And the truth and the story of Christmas is that the king has arrived, not just as a baby, but he's arrived as the king of kings and lord of lords. And that in his arrival, all of God's promises, all of the story comes to its climax and fulfillment. For in the life, death, and resurrection, God enters in and he tells the rest of the world, this is my promised son. This is the greater Adam who actually is obedient to me and rules and reigns as my servant king. This is the greater Noah who brings the recreation that we desire for our world and is the righteous one through whom I will recreate my people. This is the greater Abraham who brings the universal blessing and will form a people and land in which everyone will experience the flourishing that I intend for them. This is the greater Moses who will lead my people from the slavery of sin and establish my rule, my ways forever and ever. And this is the greater David who will establish my eternal kingdom on the earth. And the story reaches a moment where the king arrives. He's the promised king from long ago. He's the fulfiller of every covenant. He is the centerpiece of the story that God is telling. And he himself is our sure thing. He's the promised one. He's the hope we've been looking for in the midst of our own darkness. He's the only one that can deal with the disease and division and death that we see all around us. And it's his kingdom. His kingdom that will bring, he will bring one day where there will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. And that's the promise of Christmas. That the king hasn't just arrived back then, but he's going to arrive again. And he invites all of us, all of us, to enter in to his eternal kingdom right here, right now. Jesus is the greatest gift that could ever be given. And throughout this whole month, we've been looking at this gift, unwrapping it piece by piece, seeing all these aspects of who he is. He's the promised gift. The thing about this gift is it's a gift that we each have to receive for ourselves. Hear God's love for you, friend. From the very beginning, he has desired to have a relationship with you, for you to know him, for you to experience the blessing of intimacy and connection, for him to be able to bring the purpose into your life that he created and designed you for. And he's done something about your sin, your fallenness, your rebellion, so that you could have that relationship and experience the flourishing of his eternal kingdom. 
And he says that in order to receive all of that and to enter in that relationship, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to clean yourself up, get right enough, do something. All you have to do is receive it. Like a gift given at Christmas. This promised king offers you entrance into his kingdom and all he asks is that you believe in him. You believe that he died for your sin. You believe that he rose again, defeating the enemies of God and that ultimately you confess him as Lord and Savior. As you do that, you begin to experience hope because the promise becomes not just a promise, it becomes your promise. The promise you're looking for in the midst of this season and it becomes the hope that we all desire. I pray that this Christmas season, you would be reminded that the King is here and that you would put your faith and trust in Him. Even if you've done that before, renew it. Remind yourself of what He's done, that He is the great King. And commit to following after Him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we reach this crescendo moment of your story, we just stop to say thank you. Thank you that Jesus is that promised one. He is the one we can depend on. He is the thing we are looking for. God, we confess it's so easy for us to put our faith, our trust in other things, to look around this world and think maybe it's that, maybe it's that, maybe it's that. I pray you would remind our hearts today that there is only one King and one Savior. There is only one hope that we have, and it is in King Jesus. And so would you help all of us in this season as we've been in such struggle, such a hard and dark year, would you help us to put our faith in the only thing, the only sure promise that we have? Because we know your promises are true. Because our king isn't dead, he's alive. Because he defeated your enemies and he rules and reigns right in this very moment. God, I pray for anyone here who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that tonight you would begin to stir and awaken their hearts to see the fullness of who he is and that they would be able to trust you for the very first time. For those of us that do know you, help us be reminded in this season that you're our great promise, you're our great hope, and that you are our great king. And even now in this moment, we join with the angels to give you glory and you alone. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.